This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Still lurking about here in Australia? I am. I am. Yeah, for the time being. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> for those of you who are not aware, she's racking off to some dump called Harvard later mm-hmm. in the year. But um, anyway. Yeah, we, yeah, we've got a few more months to go, though. Yeah. But um, yeah, yes. We've taught her everything she knows. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Linden. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. It's a big storm this weekend. Do people like you get oh, excited? Yes, it was very dramatic. I've seen the word blizzard floating around. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of trees down. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm spending yeah. this afternoon just watching the radar. Could <laughs> <laughs> you like get it off your phone up onto the big screen and like you yeah, know, watch it on, yeah, do on a smart TV and yeah. sort of like just watch it and every it's now and then my you, yeah, a little bit of red and you go. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good day for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Ray, is that, you so. What does blizzard constitute here? When I was growing up, blizzard was like, you know, two to three feet of snow, so almost a meter of snow. A blizzard yeah. here is like a dusting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I think, I think a lot of people are saying the word without maybe having a definition of the word. And I think it depends where you are and what you're looking at and to me, how much you want to get to the slopes, whether you're yeah. using the word blizzard or not. Well, to me, it was just if you add snow and wind together, you've oh. got yourself a blizzard. Mm. <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> Ray's, looking, yeah. Ray's looking at me like Okay, couple. a breeze and a snow flurry, that yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it has been... Uh, it, it's been interesting, though, isn't it? Because the season, I saw some data um, came out uh, just over the last few days about the Australian snow... Seasons and how they've been getting shorter and poorer and we're getting these big dumps but not these smaller top-up dumps that we get all the yeah, time. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about snow. I'm bad in it and I don't do a lot of research <laughs> about it. But I think that they are seeing sort of a... The end is coming quicker in the mm. season. Is that, is yeah. that what you read? And yeah. Well, what, what I read was in the past they've always had these many top-up um, dumps of snow. You know, relatively mm. small dumps, but many top-ups. So you know, people go to wreck the snow, and before the next weekend you get a bit of a top-up, and it's good to go again. Mm. Whereas this time round, that's not happening as much. You get these big dumps, and then there's nothing for weeks, and then you get a big dump, and then there's nothing mm. for weeks. So yeah. sort of changing the, yeah. the, the the way that works. I so, suppose this winter particularly as well, it's been quite mm, dry, especially yeah. in Victoria. So it's been good for snow making, and they've been able yeah. to top up that way, but natural snow is a bit harder to come well, by. Apparently the conditions for that are getting worse, and they're predicted oh. to get much worse as well because of the humidity levels apparently affects the ability to snow oh, make. Okay. And if, if they're wrong and they're heading in the wrong direction, don't ask me which direction that is, um, <laughs> then that, that gets harder as well. So, I mean, you know... Not all good news. No, good news. no. Yeah. I was trying to bring not depressing news today. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even started our news segment. Let's start the news segment. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, I've got some positive news. So okay. I'll, I'll bring it back oh, okay. again. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about neutrinos. So, um, and you know, yeah, Shane just gave me, raise his eyebrows at me. I'm relying on the people in the room that know more about physics than I do to help me out if I get in trouble. Well, here. You, you started off bad before the show when you asked me, how do you pronounce it? And I said it's pronounced Nintendo. <laughs> That's it. I know. Luckily, I didn't fall for it this time. But this particular story is very cool because look, the, the, the neutrinos are very incredibly small particles. So they say that the mass is actually almost zero. And that means that they can actually, um, when they normally move, they can go through matter. 
And so they actually talk about the fact that, it, you know, within multiple light years, they can actually just keep passing through mm. matter without actually any interaction. And the trick with that is then how do you actually see what they're doing and how do you like measure them and detect them? And so this um, new study is, is really quite exciting because previously the detectors were enormous. So we're talking kiloton, enormous big detectors. This new study that was published this week in Science is from a group called the Coherent Collaboration. And they've actually. It's a great name. I know, for a I know. I'm like, I love it though. Like, it, it sounds like it could be a band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only do they collaborate, yeah, they're coherent they're about it. They're coherent, that. exactly. Yeah. Well, it is, um, they, they did really well to get that um, particular acronym because they looked at coherent scattering. So, you know, they, it made it all match up. Um, but the particular detector that they've built is a crystal, um, and it's built with uh, cesium and iodine. It actually looks like a cocktail shaker. You know, those metal mm, yeah, cocktail yeah, shakers. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly yep. what it looks like and it's only 15 kilograms so it's a really small detector but what they did is they actually worked out a way um, to measure the the uh, neutrinos colliding with the nucleus of an atom because of the fact that it was coherent so they actually got it so that the wave the waves of the um, movement of those neutrinos actually came together and there was coherent scattering and what happens when um, a particle actually hits the nucleus it very slightly recoils so they actually talk about it in the paper as being similar to a ping pong ball hitting a, a, a bowling ball so it's you know really not going to move very much mm-hmm. but that very very small movement is enough to make it um the crystal emit a, a light basically yep. and so they could detect that that was happening and the reason that it's interesting is because it means that there's another way now that we can actually do some testing into some of the fundamentals of physics so it was predicted over 40 years ago that that, that this particular coherent scattering and the neutrinos hitting the nucleus of an atom would happen, but up until now they'd never really been able mm. to measure it. So it's now in a sort of practical. They, they talk about it being portable. I don't know how portable a fifteen kilogram crystal device is, but uh, it does mean that you know they can look into some of these fundamentals of how these particular particles work. Well, it also means you could potentially put those detectors in orbit. Yeah. Which for me, if you look at neutrino detectors, they are basically giant, you know, bigger than Olympic swimming pool type exactly. arrangements filled with heavy water. Mm. And you need that much material in the hope that one neutrino will, you know, somehow interact with those billions, I don't know, trillions, yeah. quadrillions yeah, yeah. Um, of atoms and yep. get one little flash of light That's that you it. detect. You know, these are really big, monstrous yeah. devices which obviously you can't get into Kinda orbit, space, but, yep. but something that's 15 kilos is, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's nothing. It's like yeah, a boot. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. And, but it is, that's exactly it. They sort of talk about, you know, that it'll be really interesting to look at things like supernovas because mm. they'll be able to actually, mm. yeah, do, do some measurements from those. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, very cool stuff. stuff. Yeah, very cool stuff. Dr. Linden. Well, I'm going to bring us back down to earth. <laughs> I didn't understand half of the words in that, but it still sounds very exciting. Um, I, I, I did a lot of research. <laughs> did a lot of, uh, lot of Google definition. I, I was joking with Ray, actually, Dr. Ray. I sort of said, you know, you start reading into these sorts of things and I have a fairly good knowledge of physics because of my profession. We need to know a little bit. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I would say high level. High level. <laughs> You've been keeping these secrets. 
<laughs> the more you have to read into it, though, the more you go, oh, my gosh. And it's yeah. this whole thing, this whole idea of there are particles that actually doesn't interact with anything and they just go, so it can go through the entire planet. And, mm. like, how does that, and then my brain explodes. And the, ama- the amazing thing about that is when you look at some of the, those aspects of particle physics, mm. this, is, this is what I call the, the absolute beauty mm. of, of what I would call real hardcore science yeah, where... Yeah. Some of these particles, like around some of the Higgs boson stuff and that, you know, mm. were predicted decades yeah. before they were detected. And the, the science and the theories, or, you know, not even theories at that point, right? These yeah. are just hypotheses, yeah. were so strong and so well thought yeah. out that later, you know, you yeah. detect these particles that, guess what, don't interact with virtually anything. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, that, that's, so how do you detect them when they don't interact with virtually anything? So that's, that to me is amazing science, mm. really great stuff. I think so. one of the things I really loved about this story, actually, they had a write-up about it in the Scientific American, and, and they actually had a quote from the guy who 40 years ago had the theory, and, you know, mm. and he's still at MIT, and he, he oh. was like, you know, this is amazing, this yeah. is what I thought would happen and now it's been proven isn't that beautiful you have yeah. a theory and then you, what do you kind of have to sit around and wait for the yeah. technology to catch up exactly. to your brain yeah. and people know. working that whole time you know decades yeah. of work to and, actually and Peter, prove. you know peter higgs who proposed mm. the higgs boson you know he was extremely seen well into his 80s mm. when they first did that detection at cern mm. and you know for him that moment sort of some 50 years later to actually have have your early work vindicated mm. is just an extraordinary scenario that most of us can't even imagine actually most science these days as you know weeks to months to years yeah. but the idea that some of this stuff is so hard that it would take you know five decades yeah. um you know and other people like um alfred wagner who played tectonics mm. you know he, i think he was dead before it was really accepted mm. so you know it took that long for yeah. people to, to actually give up on the i think it was the shrinking apple model or something back mm. in the in the day you know so amazing yeah. You were going to say something? No, no. I, well, I was thinking of other famous <laughs> thermodynamicists, but I'm like, I don't know if I can explain what Boltzmann did, but nobody took him seriously so much that he actually drowned himself. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And then he's seen as kind of the father of thermodynamics. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. which is you know, and not an important area of research. Yeah, it's not just steam yeah. engines, but that's taking your work a little too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So back to you, Doctor Linden. Yeah. Sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> Side note. That's just. Put that there. That was a wonderful conversation. But I had some good news that I wanted to bring this week. I saw so much interesting news this week, and I found it a good news story, one of those science stories that you're like, oh, well, that's cool. Why didn't we think of doing that before? Uh, And it's all to do with these crown of thorns sea stars. Do you guys know crown of thorns sea stars? Those nasty, Mm. spiky critters. We know that they're bad guys. They can eat a quarter of a cubic metre of coral every day. That's amazing. Yeah, apparently they've been responsible for about 40% of coral deaths across the Great Barrier Reef and climate change is, you know, doing the rest rest. of it. So they're nasty bad guys. But Mm. this new study has looked at a coral, um, a crown of thorn outbreak in New Caledonia. It was in the early 2000s. And they looked at the sea stars because they do a lot of kind of transects and they count how many sea stars they are and then they try to remove as many of them as they can. Mm -hmm. And in this study, they just thought, oh, why don't we have a look at daytime and nighttime? These crown of thorn sea stars, they're nocturnal creatures. We do all of our transects. Mm -hmm. We do all of our removal activities during the day. But let's check out nighttime and see if we can find more at night. And they did. Yeah, and yeah. That's, 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 that's the there funny. There you go. Yeah, there you go. They found they found twenty seven percent more. Wow. Um, they did every six months for two years. Yep. They looked at the same area. They had volunteer divers in nine different spots, and they sort of counted the number of sea stars that they could find, and they found on average about twenty seven percent more. And so that's just a really nice little study that then they can take to, you know, coral management authorities mm-hmm. and say, just look at night, man. 
Yeah, collect yeah. them at night. Collect them, them at night. At night. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and hopefully that be a practical, yeah, yeah. useful research are, piece. Are there more challenges about collecting sea stars, uh, crown of thorns at night? Have you seen the film Jaws? Yeah, well. <laughs> it's always at night. Um, well, yeah, maybe there are. Yeah, it is. It's probably it's more dangerous it to, it's to more dive dangerous, and stuff at night. Yeah. But, but uh, I suppose if you're if you are dealing with trying to eradicate or you know really get the numbers down, if you're missing something like 27 percent mm-hmm. of the load you could be taking out, exactly. Um, yeah. That's you know that's a third, right? Yeah. I mean, getting close to a third. So that's yeah. uh, kind of gut you. you yeah, know, you can make it. Make it. And I can difference. imagine too the ones you'd miss probably the smaller ones that you know yeah, all the could get away. Ones? Yeah, the, yeah, the more adapted ones. <laughs> yeah, the, the ones paper. You, yeah. The paper kept saying, you know, they use sort of tricky behaviour and they kind of hide in different ways during the day. <laughs> you know, the real sneaky characters come out at night, not to anthropomorphise crown of thorns sea stars. But, but they're adaptive. Isn't, yeah. isn't part of the removal process or some? I think Syra was doing this, that w- they were looking at Sometimes they try to release the pheromone from its the predator snail that actually eats them. Yeah, I heard something about that. Oh, yeah, 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 and it brings them out and yeah, yeah, or it gets yeah, them yeah, to it move, gets them and, move and, and so then, it yeah, makes yeah, them move from yeah. their camouflage. And you can see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Cane toads. Let's get onto it. Cane toads mm-hmm. and sea stars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, you, I'm sure you're all aware of the amazing work that the Kepler Space uh, Probe has done over the last sort of oh, how many years now? Quite a few years. Mm. Um, in it monitors a hundred thousand stars all at the same time, so it's constantly looking at a hundred thousand stars, and it has been looking for any change in brightness of those stars, so that it can basically determine whether or not there are planets moving around those stars, and when the planet becomes, you know, sits between us and the the distant star. The brightness of the star goes down slightly, and you can work out all sorts of things from that information: how big the planet is, what its orbit is, how fast it orbits, all this stuff. And Kepler has taken our knowledge of extrasolar, you know, so not around our star planets, um, to in the thousands now. Mm. We know of thousands of them. So just 20 years ago, we were like, oh, I wonder if there's planets out there, you know, other than ours. Now it's kind of like, are there any stars that don't have planets? Really? Mm. Uh, it's mm. just completely changed. But um, very soon, we won't be talking about Kepler anymore. We'll be talking about TESS which I suspect until this point no one has even heard of TESS. Um, but this is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite that NASA's intending to put up next year. It's a collaboration with MIT, and this thing will make Kepler look like your old handy cam compared to your you know, smartphone. It is, just, it is just a completely different beast. Basically, they'll be looking in particular for um for the smaller planets so the earth like planets because a lot of the ones we know that kepler found were the really big ones the small ones are harder obviously they they don't take up as much space they don't block as much light um some of them travel closer to their stars you know they travel faster they you know there's a whole other reasons why they're more difficult to detect but they're the ones we're interested in because they're the ones that are more potentially Earth-like, not these big super giants like Jupiter. We want the ones that are more Earth-like. They're hoping that in the first few years it'll, it'll look for something like 20,000 new exoplanets. So put that in perspective of the several thousand that Kepler's detected, which we've thought is just extraordinary. Um, but in addition, this thing has it, it does things in a different way. So one exciting piece of information is for the first year it will be looking in the southern hemisphere. Take that, Northern Hemisphere. Oh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, outside first, um, which is great, you know, because uh, you know a lot of these things end up in Northern he- Hemisphere studies. But this one's going to be uh, looking at the Southern Hemisphere for the first year. It will basically monitor the brightness of two hundred thousand stars all at the same time. It's amazing. So this is amazing. Now, and Dr. Lauren, you'll be able to comment on the optics here a bit, but. Mm. 
It'll have four of these specially designed cameras that have been designed by the, the engineers at MIT. And basically, each of these cameras has been designed specifically so that it can look at such a large number of stars without a, a general flaw that I think we have in our eye too, which is when you have a camera and you look at an object and you take a photo, it tends to be a little sharper in the centre of the image than it is around the edges. That's right, yeah. And so when we look at something, I think this is true of the eye, our peripheral vision, we don't notice it, but it's a bit blurry. Is that right? Is that, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so cameras have the same problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's it. And that's, and that's why, you know, we, with camera lenses, you often pay really huge amounts mm. if you're going for a really good lens. And it's because of the fact those aberrations are reduced. So, yeah. yeah and yep. so that's not a huge problem in these cameras. They've tried to reduce it as much as possible, but it's not a deal breaker because mm. remember, they're not looking for a picture here. They're looking for a brightness measurement of mm. the stars that they're, they're imaging. So obviously the sharper the image, the better they can measure that. But they've done all the simulations and they believe that, you know, over the range of these broader cameras, they'll get the exact sort of information they need, the law being tolerance and so forth. So this thing's going up next year. Um, assuming everything fits together properly, the, the cameras have now gone to, gone to NASA for installation. They've, they've got through their testing phase. So they're being installed in the satellite and it will go up in 2018. So and I suspect, along with the new James Webb Telescope, next year is going to be just an amazing year of space-based telescope astronomy where we're going to get more and more. And I think these um, these numbers that we've... You know, I have personally been super excited mm-hmm. about the Kepler you know, discoveries over the last, you know, five, eight years, whatever it's been. I mean, this thing's going to dwarf mm-hmm. these things. The, the, one of the bits that I'm excited about too is, you know, you know when we talk about the time it takes to get data back from some of these things, and especially with New Horizons and Jupiter, it took time to see some of the images and so forth. These ones, about two weeks. Oh, so wow. It'll be super fast. So we'll get, we'll get some really cool fast stuff and it will be mm-hmm. amazing. So anyway. Jim, quick question. Do yeah. you, what are they doing with the Kepler? Are they going to leave it going? Or? Well, Kepler will still run, yeah. I think. Um, I'm not sure what its fuel source is, actually. I have to mm. look that one up. But it's been going for a while, but it's still bringing back some amazing yeah, data. That's so, what I thought. It's yeah, still, and yeah. This, this just, you've got to remember, um, how can I put this? It's a big-ass sky, yeah. right? So yeah. <laughs> two, another 200,000 stars yep. plus Kepler's 100,000. That sweet FA mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the whole sky. Yeah, that is right. nothing. Yep, yep. So even if both of them are running all the time or you had 50 of these buggers, you still wouldn't be covering the whole sky. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's good, well. but yeah. uh, keep them going and, and keep going as long as we can. So, all right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, we have a special guest today. We have the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research, Professor Doug Hilton. We're going to keep him on for most of the show, assuming he's interesting. But, <laughs> I, th- but I think he will be. So we'll see how we go. Here's some music, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Hey, yes, you are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and this is Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio with us now is Professor Doug Hilton. He is the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. He's been here before. Welcome back, Doug. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but first of all, I thought one thing we haven't done in the past is just a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now in charge of this pretty much the number one research institute in the country. One of the good research one institutes of the good ones. in the country. Well said. <laughs> so give us a bit about your history. How'd you, how'd you get there? Uh, I'm a, I guess I'm a Melbourne boy, um, although born in the UK and parents came out as, I guess, economic immigrants mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s and grew up in the outer suburbs and went to primary school and high school, uh, local high school, and didn't really 
know what I wanted to do, um, probably didn't study hard enough, uh, and fell into science at Monash and muddled my way through, distracted by all of the things that 17, 18 and 19-year-old boys get distracted by. <laughs> um, and then finally spent a summer at ANU um, working in a lab, and that was really the that was really my career there. Loved the lab. Um, found that doing research was very different from doing prac classes at uni. Yeah. Um, and fell in love with blood cells and haven't worked on anything else for the last 34 years. So how did you end up at ANU though? Was that um, a summer program or was it? Yeah, there was a John Curtin school have a, had a summer program. ANU had a summer program. So they brought, brought students from around Australia to give them an experience of research for three months. Um, and it was fantastic. Hmm. And your your so your research career though is very different to you leading as director of the institute. I mean, are you still doing the research stuff yourself, or have you had to pair that back? Uh, you should ask my laboratory that. So <laughs> they're 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 productive in neglect. So <laughs> I do have a laboratory, and they're a fantastic group. Yep. Um, but of course, I don't spend as much time uh, working on my own science as perhaps I would like. Um, but that comes with the territory of running a big organisation. So mm. I think the thing that the thing that I miss most is that extended period thinking really deeply about a problem. So immersing yourself in the problem. I'm someone who has to sort to daydream in order to do science well, to be able to mull things over and to have extended periods. I'm not very good at at segregating an hour here and an hour there right. and being very productive scientifically. So that's a real juggling act. Is that something that um, is becoming rarer now in the scientific fields? I mean, you know, I was brought up in that same mindset where, you know, you could go three months without really achieving much, but you did a whole lot of thinking in that period and then there was one day where you just, you know, things just happened to go right. Are we losing that? I think we are losing it a little bit, and part of that is the amount of time it takes to accrue the money that you need to do the experiments and support the people in labs, and that's true of medical research. I suspect it's, I suspect it's true of all areas of science that, you know, it can be three, four, five months a year writing the grants and then reviewing the grants that you need to, to fund the people doing, doing the work. And I think that really eats into productive research time. Um, yeah, I think everybody does their science differently. Some people, some people really thrive on that frenetic pace and, mm. and quarantining different parts of the week for different activities. And other people, I think, mull over and put their feet up on the desk and look out of the window. It doesn't quite happen as much as perhaps it did before though. Yeah, yeah. The look out of the window. Oh, yeah, I remember those days. That was great. The best days of my life. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the funding and so forth, I mean, do, do we need, do you think, a redesign there? I mean, you, you look at some of these, I always find it interesting when people send me their grants to review before they go in and, you know, it's this 110 page document and they're asking for something as little as $300,000, which in, in the sort of corporate sector, would be done with a five-page PowerPoint, you know. So, the, yeah. um, I mean, are we just getting that wrong? Does that need to be redesigned? Well, it's interesting you ask that because National Health and Medical Research Council are redesigning their grant system. Mm. So, really, for the first time in 25 years, they're overhauling the way grants are allocated, and very much the goal is to try and make the system more productive. So, we understand that that with with funding at the moment for through NHMRC, it's unlikely to increase too much, but we can certainly allocate it in a way that makes the community more productive. And and Dr. Anne Kelso, who's the CEO of the NHMRC, I think is doing a grand job in in tackling that. Mm. Now, 
Dr. Uh, is that somewhere where Australia is leading a little bit? I know NIH also proposed changes to try to make their system more productive and got so much feedback and pushback from the community, they actually wavered on what they were trying to do and scaled back their proposed changes. And is Australia maybe being a little more forward-thinking? So certainly, Anne, it, it, it's a little bit like yes, Minister, um, when somebody says that's a brave move, Dr Kelso. Um, it, I think I think she's been really proactive about it. Uh, I think it's I, w- I should declare a conflict. I was on the expert working group that that came up with a, a scheme that that's going to be implemented. Um, at least part of it's going to be implemented. Um, I think it's too early to tell how successful it's going to be. But I I was really excited by what was being proposed, and that was to have um, uh, reduced numbers of grants being applied for and caps, and therefore. Um, greater time for people to, to really concentrate on the things that are going to push the frontiers forward and make them famous, which is getting papers mm. published, making discoveries rather than, rather than obtaining grants. You know, grants really are just an input. Mm. And I think we've sort of mixed up our philosophy around career progression a little bit. I think there's a lot of people that feel like they've made it as a scientist if they get a grant where yeah. really what you want to be doing is the thing that you were passionate about in the first place, which was making a discovery about something, ideally a profound discovery. It's funny you say that. It brings back a, a, a very hurtful memory of mine when I got my first grant and I walk up to my, my supervisor, uh, Keith Nugent, who's a, he's a DBCR at La Trobe now, and I said, you know, I've got this grant, Keith, and, you know, and he looked at me and says, that's an input. I, I count outputs. And I was like, <laughs> oh, he said, it's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> was like, the qualification yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was a good day. As your lip quivered, yeah, the qualification like, oh, came out. Yeah, that was the first time. Anyway, but uh, but he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. On its on its own, it was it was a good good measure, yeah. um, but it wasn't a measure of what I'd put out into the scientific community. So, The, the other thing that I've been finding really interesting, I think it's changing a lot as well, is um, you know, the, the push for industry engagement. And so things like you know, project development grants with the NHMRC and and um yeah so you, you obviously at we have a lot of experience with that and uh, it's sort of um often talk to younger researchers and they feel a little bit resistant you know so i guess have you had you know experiences with that yeah we talk about we talk about the importance of both doing basic science and the way we talk to government and supporters about that is doing the sort of science that excites other scientists so the sort of science that gets read in Paris or in Beijing and people say, I wish I'd done that or I'm going to work on that area now because, you know, it was a really lovely piece of work. But equally, you know, I think the ability to do that basic science um, comes with an obligation and that is if you stumble over something that potentially has benefit to the community and define that really broadly, then you have an obligation maybe as an individual or a group or as an institution to push that forward. And for us, interacting with industry is just one of the ways that we can push forward the research that comes out of the labs, the basic research labs. You know, sometimes we interact with biopharmaceutical companies. Other times we interact with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and it really depends who has the capital to help you push that project forward. And then hopefully you're choosing somebody who has both the capital and shares some of the values that that you share as an organisation. So NHMRC are doing a bit of a rehaul, re-overhaul. Do you think that this might inform possible changes for the ARC, the Australian Research Council, where researchers from all other areas that aren't medical get their funding? So I think ARC um, 
has already started to be a little bit more creative. And one of the things that ARC tried to do was to have um, a grant scheme that doesn't have a deadline. So you can put your application in at any time. Mm. One of the interesting things that came out of that was they got a lot fewer applications. Mm. Um, so just by having a rolling grant submission, I think it, it meant people had less of a deadline in their mind and therefore weren't putting in grants that were perhaps... Lower grade. Lower grade mm. or or mm. not quite ready for, yeah. for, for airtime. I think there's other challenges around um, ARC funding and that's probably just the quanta of the funding. And you're absolutely right. Health and medical research is funded through National Health and Medical Research Council and now the new Medical Research Future Fund and there's some sort of basic medical research funded by ARC. And I think what would be absolutely fantastic would be to be a, see a sovereign fund like the MRFF that was able to support cutting-edge research in non-medical areas. So I think the MRFF was a fantastic idea as a a sovereign national fund that would support medical research in perpetuity. But I think it would be great if we complemented that with another fund that supported all of those other areas of research that, um, that, that feed into fundamental knowledge, but also on, on which medical research is mm. piggybacking things mm. like physics and chemistry and engineering and a whole lot of other areas. And how did the MRFF start, Doug? I mean, in, in that sense, was, was it one or two people or? I mean, it was what? one or two people and, um, it was a it was a real challenge from for the medical research community to come to terms with it. It was part of the two thousand and fourteen budget. Um, Peter Dutton was health minister, and he decided he wanted to set up a sovereign fund for medical research and had the support of the prime minister Tony Abbott, who was previously health minister and a passionate supporter of medical research. Um, the challenge at that time was that the mechanism by which the fund was going to be capitalised wasn't a, a mechanism that had good parliamentary support. Mm. And so there was a period of about 18 months where the Conservative government negotiated with crossbenchers and with Labor and came up with a plan that did have parliamentary support and was approved about 18 months later. Because mm, it started with the GP co-payment, co yeah, which was not a popular thing. No. Yeah, so it's, 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 I remember that. and it was, I was always thinking, geez, you've got an amazingly good idea yeah. coupled with let's call it a not amazingly good idea necessarily and you you know you want one to go but you don't want the other to happen and you know one of the things that was um a really interesting experience was coming together with people across the research community at universities within industry and medical research institutes and trying to work with the politicians across um across all areas across all parties to come up with a mechanism for capitalising the fund that would be acceptable to the community and you know that was actually a lot of fun and sitting down one on one and meeting virtually every crossbencher and, and a lot of Labor and, and Conservative members of Parliament um, was really a privilege you actually you actually realise they're much much better one on one than they come across in the media right. yeah no surprises there no. we're going to take a short break for some station announcements folks and we'll be back in a second we're going to talk to Doug Moore about the new work coming out of Wehi that's uh, quite Quite amazing on blood cancers. Three, triple, ah. And there you are listening to Triple R in the studio with us at the moment is Professor Doug Hilton, the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Now, Doug, you guys have been in the news a lot lately because of uh, because of this venetoclax, amazing drug. Tell us a bit about, well, first of all, it's, it's for leukemia. It's for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, yep. CLL. What, which is what? 
uh, which is a disease of a particular type of white blood cell called lymphocytes, mm-hmm. um, where those cells don't behave themselves normally, so they don't die at the right rate um, and therefore accumulate in the blood and form a leukaemia. Mm-hmm. And over time, your I guess your number of red blood cells and so forth that transport oxygen and everything else in the body just get lower and lower and you... Yeah, yeah. so so the, the challenge with that disease is it can be quite indolent, so as its name suggests, chronic, mm-hmm. um, but it can transform into an acute disease and that's when you can get into trouble with um, issues around the other blood cells being crowded out and not produced, so you end up having challenges around oxygen carrying and bleeding to death because of the lack of the blood clotting cells called platelets and being able to fight infections properly because of the lack of the other leukocytes. Right. Now, we and team have been working on this particular option for decades, I think, haven't you? It has not been an overnight success. Yeah, right. So, but it's a, it's a story that I think occurs a lot in medical research, mm. an observation that was made almost exactly 30 years ago, right. um, a little over a, a week um, extra on 30 years. So I think the date of the discovery was the 28th of July, 1987, and it was made by a PhD student, a guy called David Vo, who's now my assistant director. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he discovered was that a particular protein called BCL2 was hijacked by um, lymphoid cells, and when the when the lymphoid cells hijacked that protein and expressed it too much of it, they lived past their, their use-by date and accumulated and therefore... Um, began the process in developing into a leukemia, so going from a normal cell to a leukemic cell. Okay. And that was really the first time people understood that the life of and death of a cell um, could contribute to leukemia as against dividing, 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 dividing in an uncontrolled way. Mm. So these cells um, sit around but accumulate. And the the drug you guys have put together or, or have been working on, venetoclax, I mean, what does that do in this case? So it's very simple. It it binds to the BCL2 protein and inhibits it and resets the use-by date of those cells. So the cells actually die very quickly um, because they're they're long overdue to die. So you add the, the drug venetoclax and the cells die as they should. Now, it, pretty much across the board, whenever I hear about a cancer treatment of any type, usually there's a list of side effects that is pretty nasty. What is it like for this particular drug? This this drug's highly targeted, so the only protein that it seems to hit is BCL2, mm-hmm. and um, BCL2 in, in in doesn't seem to have a lot of other uh, unique functions, and therefore the on-target side effects are reasonably low. Um, the big challenge often with these patients is their tumour burden is large, that is they have really big tumours, so if you add too much of the drug or you treat the patient with too much of the drug um, early on, then the tumour cells lies, that is they break apart and their contents get released, and that can be mm. toxic to the body. And okay. the way clinicians have dealt with that is just to dial down the dose initially. That's a pretty good side effect to be dealing with yeah. in a sense. It's, it can be very serious, but it's the sort of side effect you like to see when you're treating yeah, it's incurable cancer. Yeah, it's, yeah, working. it's actually working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, with with regards to the commercial aspects of what's happened here, because the announcement, of course, is that I think two hundred and fifty million US dollars to yep, right. WeHi. Talk us through that process, because this is something that we don't hear about Australian discoveries very often hitting the big time in terms of their commercial success. So, the the commercial arrangement we had was that essentially came from having a, a real depth of expertise about how cell death is regulated. 
So from that initial discovery in 1987, um, Suzanne Corey and Jerry Adams, who, who ran the division that David Vaux worked in, um, were prescient enough to see that this was a major discovery and they moved most of their team to be working on this discovery. So over the last 30 years, there have probably been 400 people at the Walton Eliza Hall Institute that have worked on the regulation of cell death. And that depth of knowledge was something that was attractive to some pharmaceutical companies that were interested in trying to create a new medicine. And those pharmaceutical companies then worked with us to develop the medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was approved uh, last year by the FDA, the, the drug reg- regulatory body in the US and the European regulators and the Australian regulators mm-hmm. earlier this year. And the Institute, in the way it protected its intellectual property, gets a royalty from that arrangement. And then what we decided to do is you could ride that royalty train, which means mm-hmm. if the drug sells well, then we get our percentage. But if, for example, a competitor comes out to phonetoclax then the royalties the sales will go down and our royalties will go down and there's a ways there's ways of mitigating the risk of that that royalty roller coaster um, and one of the ways to do that is called monetization which is where you sell a share of your royalties to an organization that's looking to make money and the sorts of organizations that have that amount of money are often pension funds and superannuation mm-hmm. funds and we ended up selling part of our royalty flow to a canadian pension fund um, in exchange for 250 million US dollars up front. That's quite a sum of cash for an institution like WeHi to take on. I mean, what, what does that, what does that mean for you guys? I mean, you know. So it sounds like a lot of money, um, and, and it is, and I don't want to sound churlish in any way. Hmm. Um, but when you compare it to the endowments of other organizations, it's actually pretty modest. So University of Sydney has an endowment of about $1.4 billion. Yep. Yep. And if you compare that to an organization like Harvard, its endowment is $35 billion. So, you know, in the scheme of things, it's, um, modest. Um, but what it does is a few things. The first is it allows us to put some extra money into the endowment and that income from our endowment is what we use to support our basic scientists. So we like to be able to quarantine people from the ups and downs of National Health and Medical Research Council funding. So we don't necessarily want our human resource decisions to be made by peer review. And what that allows us to do is to support people that may not publish papers very often, but when they do publish papers, they're really good ones. And that's really important to us because we want our scientists to be brave. We want them to tackle difficult problems that can take years to crack. So that's really exciting. And it also allows us to do a couple of new things as an institute. Some of those are scientific and some of those are sort of cultural. Uh, it was just a, another way to, to look at it. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a large sum of money and it's an amazing investment, but you said you had 400 people over 30 years working on this. Yeah. Employing them and supporting 400 people over 30 years is not a, lot of money. a small amount of money too. I mean, right. and look at the amazing outcome. But I guess that's one other perspective to look at for the... Yeah, that's right. That's right. And what you you mentioned that you've monetized part of your ownership, but not all of it. What are the expectations for the rest? So, so the idea, the, there's lots of different ways to monetize. There's caps, there's tails, there's cap and tails, there's strips. These are all things that I never thought I would learn about (laughs) as a simple protein chemist, um, 30 plus years ago. Um, so, so once the, once the cap 
amount has been reached for the pension fund, then we share the remaining royalties with the pension fund in a way that's pretty good for the institute. So one of the exciting things about Venetoclax is there are 40-plus clinical trials going round, mm. going on around the world for all sorts of different cancers. And obviously if it's approved for more of those indications, then sales will be higher and the cap will be paid off quicker and the institute will again share royalties. Mm. And, and what's the on-the-ground impact right now? I mean, if I'm a person who, you know, rocks up to my clinicians and I find out that I do, unfortunately, have leukaemia, I mean, is, you know, because often we, we get so many researchers on who talk about amazing things happening in cancer and for the people on the ground, frankly, you know, if they can survive the next 20 years, they'll be really helpful. Yeah. But where is it for, for this particular drug? So for, so the, the nice thing about this story is it's not a story where I say, and it might help someone in five years' mm. time, um, the clinical trials um, are still ongoing, but the drug's been approved for use. So that means a doctor, an oncologist, can prescribe you that drug. So if you have a type of, if you have the type of CLL where um, where this drug's been approved, which is something called refractory CLL, um, a, a form of CLL that's failed other therapies, then you'll get put on this drug, and there's a fair chance you'll do well. That's excellent news. Now, Doug, just before we let you go, um, I know you're investing, you know, as director, some of the money into, as you said, cultural elements. Um, a childcare centre you're planning to build? I mean, this is yeah. not the sort of thing most uh, research institutes do first. So we ask a lot of our staff. We want we want our staff to make amazing discoveries or support the people who are making amazing discoveries. And the thing I love about being director of, of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute is the staff and students are incredibly passionate. And so what we want to try and do is make it easier for... Um, especially parents of young children to be able to juggle giving their family the care and the time that, that they need to give them, um, but also being creative and making great discoveries. So we're building a, a childcare centre for 100 kids on our forecourt. So it's the first thing that you'll see as you walk into the institute. And really the response, the, the reason we got behind that project was that there'd been a huge amount of building in the Parkville precinct. Um, and anybody who drives down mm. Royal Parade will see all manner of glossy new buildings, but not one additional childcare centre, despite the fact that probably 70% of the workforce are women and yeah. most of those women are between sort of 20 and 40. Yeah. Well, bravo on that, and um, hopefully others will see that good example and, and follow suit. There's many, many more new buildings, no doubt, go up in Parkville over the coming years. Doug, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Congratulations to you and the entire team there at WeHar and on this fabulous, you know, 30-year um, effort and, and a magnificent outcome, and good luck with the future. Thanks, and it's been great to talk to the whole Einstein Go Go team. Great to have you. Cheers. Professor Doug Hilton's the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. We're going to take a short break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a moment. Uh, Dr. Linden's got something very important to tell you that you can get involved with. Three. Triple. Linden, some citizen science going on? Yes, there's Tell some us. citizen science going on. So I'm sure you all know National Science Week is coming up. Mm-hmm. 14th to the 20th of August. There's lots and lots of science activities happening then. But if you are away from the 14th to the 20th of August, that's very sad for you. But on the 21st of August, we have an event coming up. Uh, the Australian Meteorological and Oceanographic Society are organising a citizen science workshop at the University of Melbourne. So... My passion is old weather observations, mm. rescuing old data. So we're going to get some people from Adelaide, some people from the Bureau and CSIRO and the University of Melbourne are going to come and give some talks about not only 
rescuing old weather data, but also taking old, taking new weather observations in your home, in your mm. backyard. And then in the afternoon, we're going to have some workshops. So uh, experts are going to show you the best way to set up your weather station, so you're recording in the best way, and we're going to have a transcribathon where you we're going to be typing up some previously unseen observations from Melbourne from the 1940s. So if you mm. Google... Eventbrite Amos Citizen Science. You should be able to find it. Registration is free and there'll be biscuits. <laughs> so that's exciting. Well, I'm there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's enough to get me, get me through the door. Uh, and I think we'll put it on our social media as well. So yeah, if Liv's you can come, tweeting as we good. speak. Mm. Yep. Fantastic. Now, I should mention, folks, uh, of course, next week is the Radiothon first edition. Yay! Uh, I know, it's very exciting. It's, it's the one time of the year, I have to say, it's my favourite time of the year because we, we spend so much of our time putting the show together, but we really get to hear from um, you, the audience. So it's the time when you can ring up and, you know, send us rude or nice messages as you uh, <laughs> require, um, you know, and support the station because the station is, of course, completely or almost completely funded by the subscribers and it means a huge amount to us when, when everyone calls up and we feel quite chuffed and usually this is the week where I say my fuel tank for enthusiasm is empty and it gets completely refilled for the whole year for so another year does it mean week. we're going to have to find zombie stories for two weeks for well look I think I'm all for it so this year it's you know it's alive as the theme and mm-hmm. it's you know all horrific and I think our show title's been changed to Frankenstein and Go-Go from <laughs> Go-Go by the station in fact if you have a look at the grid folks and for those of you who are subscribers already you should be getting your Radiothon edition probably already in the mail and it's got some Amazing stuff in there. It's got an article I wrote on fidget spinners. It's got amazing stuff in there as well. But it's <laughs> and the top amazing thing is because they, those things are evil shit, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, any way you slice it, parents who know they know that's evil crap. Yeah. Um, that's why I wrote it. So um, anyway, it's it's going to be a lot of fun, and and the station will be decked out with a whole lot of volunteers. I was up at Lake Mountain uh, over Friday, Saturday, and I was having dinner in Narbathong, which is near between Hillsville and Marysville. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there with my family. There's no one in this place. You know, it's a beautiful place. And there's this lady sort of on the other side of the room. She came over, and it was it was one of the ladies from Triple R and Lisa. And I was like, hello, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> you can't get away. Triple R's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do want to support the station, and our program next week. We're going to have a fun show for you. It will be all um, all bits and pieces of news and that, but there's going to be heaps of information, and we always have a good time. So please We may or may not in. be in costume. Oh, I'll be in costume. <laughs> going to be my first radio I'm phone, wearing it so. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we'll no, just wear uh, the same kind of toilet paper get-up yeah, that we've we'll, all we'll got on. Exactly. exactly. Now. Just exactly. like this. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Anyway, Dr. Lauren, thank you very much. Pleasure. Dr. Linden, great to have you in. Thank you. See Dr. You next week. Ray, we'll see you guys, or hopefully all fun. of you next week. I think you're all coming in. Anyway, the whole team will be here, folks. It'll be great. We're going to hand over to Edith. Thanks for listening to Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday. And remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.